1: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to another episode. Yes, another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I am Ezra Klein. Thank you for asking. My guest today is Jessica Valenti. I've known Jessica a long time. She's a founder of the amazing blog Feministing. We started out in the early blogosphere together back when uh, blogs were young and everything was wonderful. And she's just written a really amazing book, Sex Object, which is a a very personal memoir about being a woman and the tax that being treated continuously and in a million different ways as a sex object takes on, uh, on you. It's a really profoundly raw and honest book. We talk about it a lot in in this interview, but you know, as someone who knows her well, it, it's in many places hard to read, both in terms of what it makes you reflect on in your own life and 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 in hers. So, I really do recommend listening to this, and I really do recommend reading this book, even if you don't think it's your thing. It um, it will sensitize you or it did for me to, to things that maybe you thought you understood, but maybe didn't feel very visceral. It's a very, reading it is a very visceral experience. We also talk a lot about the early blogosphere and how blogging and comment sections were different than sort of this age of social media. We talk about how feminism has changed and is changing. We talk about the political correctness wars and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. We talk about Jessica's advice for writing books. She's written five of them and she has some advice that is maybe not what I was hoping to hear but is probably good advice we talk about all kinds of things it was a lot of fun to to get to sit down with her Uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did as always I've got three quick requests for you one is to listen to my other podcast The Weeds which is my more policy focused podcast if you're not a listener I think you'll enjoy it another is to Share this podcast, put it on Twitter, on the Facebook, tell your friends, send them an episode you think they would enjoy. When you do that, that is how this podcast grows. It keeps us going. It's deeply appreciated by me. And finally, to email me at at vox.com with guest ideas, with show feedback, with whatever you want. I do check that email. I appreciate the discussion. I don't get back to everything, but I I really do read it. Um, So without further ado, then, here is Jessica. So I know so much more about you now. (laughs) (laughs) Do you? (laughs) Your book is very good.
3: Thank you. I I actually read it. Oh, well, that makes me really I read the whole thing. Oh, good. And it
2: turns out to be super easy and addictive to read.
3: <laughs> oh, that makes, yeah, that makes me really happy then.
2: I am super interested by the process of writing a book like that. Sure. So you and I have been friends for like nine years or something, yeah. right? Yeah. I was really excited to hear, remember we hung out one day at your loft in Williamsburg. I thought it was like <laughs> yeah, the most <laughs> amazing, impressive New York lifestyle I'd ever seen. And now I found <laughs> out it was like an illegal loft.
3: It was, yeah, it was 100% illegal. I, I paid under the table to to get it.
2: They paid me to leave. In retrospect, that makes that whole thing right, seem even sense. more amazing and exciting. Right, You're
3: like, wow, this is a really big apartment for New York State. Yeah. It's it
2: very, was, yeah, it was like the kind of apartments you see on TV. Yeah.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> it, was, it was completely illegal. But so we've known each other a while, and I feel like I could have been your best friend for 20 years and mm-hmm. not known half of what's in the book. This is true. How do you think about revealing that much? Like, and I mean this really positively, but I didn't expect the book to be as honest as it was. Right. And I think maybe because I could never – I, like, would never have had the courage to write a book that honest.
3: It always makes me nervous when people say that. I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> you know, I think what helps is that I didn't start writing it with the intention of publishing. Like, half of oh, it – Oh, really? Well, half of it was just, like, writing that I was doing on the side for myself sort of, like, as a catharsis. And then I realized, like, oh, like, this is this is a book. Like, this is, this is happening. So, like, the, the actual process of writing the book – wasn't, I don't want to say it wasn't hard, but it was enjoyable in a way that was not true of my previous books. But once it was done, the knowledge that people would read it was the difficult part. So like these last few months have been like really, really difficult.
2: Was it hard to relive some of the stories you go through in the book? No.
3: Strange. I thought it, I thought it would be, but no, I mean, I was in embarrassed at myself at some points or like a little bit ashamed of myself, like with the drug use and and stuff like that. But it wasn't it wasn't difficult. But I think that like this is sort of a negative thing to say about myself. But I think that's in part like I still have a pretty third person view of my life. And I mm-hmm. think that that's true of a lot of women when you're talking about sexism or or difficult things that you've gone through, like you've sort of learned to take like a little bit of a dissociative state.
2: Um Did did things feel – I was actually wondering about that in the book. Did it feel like that when you were living through it? Which is to say Mm. there's a a kind of – when you read the book, you're both like the protagonist and the character who is acted upon. Right. And I wondered if that was a sort of way you saw it as you sort of recollected and tried to understand these experiences or if at the time it it, it felt like that.
3: No, at the time it felt like that. I have really – distinct memories in adolescence of thinking of myself as a character like almost like seeing myself from the outside like especially if I was like walking down a subway tunnel and like had earphones in my ear it was like oh this is sort of like you know you're in a movie and like the things (laughs) going on it was very it was very weird which of course is just like maybe a strange personality idiosyncrasy but yeah no I felt separated from it.
2: That's super interesting. So let me actually, before we dive all the way into the book, because yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, there's a ton I want to ask you about that, but I actually want to like, situate us a little bit because sure. not everybody in the audience maybe knows you as well as I do. Tell me about starting Feministing. Okay, because like that's how we know each other. Yes. We know each other from the early bloggers. from baby blogging, back when blogs were great,
3: right? Back <laughs> when they were amazing. I had finished grad school and I was working at a nonprofit, like a mainstream women's nonprofit in New York,
2: and was. Are you allowed to say what that nonprofit is? Oh, you always are kind of like, like a mainstream women's. I mean, nonprofit. it's n- okay. Okay, you don't that's, have to. No, no,
3: no, it's fine. I don't really care. It's not like I'm ever going to go work for nonprofits again. It's now what is called Legal Momentum. Then it was it was called Now Legal Defense and Education okay. Fund. So it was like the national organization for women's legal arm. They were two separate organizations, but shared like a board of directors. Got it. I had an entry level position, like communications assistant wrote press releases and like did their newsletter and stuff like that. And it was just the leadership then did not treat young feminists very well. And around the same time, whenever a young feminist was sort of quoted in the media, they sort of went to the same two people, same three people again and again and again. And my boss at the time is a guy named Bill Share, who I'm sure. Um, oh,
2: really? Yeah, you know, yeah. Bill also Scher, from the or from yes, from one blog, Liberal Oasis.
3: And he he was yeah he's the first guy to ever give me a job. So he had hired me, and he was like, "Oh, you should really start a blog." I was like, "I have no idea what that is," um, <laughs> but but okay. And in what,
2: what, give give me a year here. When are this we? this is
3: 2004.
2: 2004. This is 2004. Oh. Pff. I, I started my blog in 2003.
3: Oh, go fuck yourself. <laughs> um, and ironically enough, I, I started it because the guy I was dating at the time was like a, a, a sort of a computer nerd
2: okay. and like
3: and a new code and he like set it up for me.
2: He knew code so he could sign you up on blogger.com?
3: No, he likes he you built had a, it you had from – Yeah, like he like
2: built oh, it. I didn't have a real blog yeah, until so, so God I went. knows when. <laughs> um, like, so
3: he totally, he totally built it and I just started doing it and I think, you know, we, we – we're pretty successful from the get go, and I think one of the reasons we were is because I had a full time job, but knew that I wanted something up on the site every day. I sort of en- I enlisted two women I was working with, and I en- enlisted my sister, and so it was it was a group blog from the start. And so we were we were doing a couple of posts. A where
2: day. did the name Feministing come from?
3: I actually have a scrap of paper where like we were like Feminister, like not, <laughs> yeah, I don't actually think the ER is there, but it was all this fighting, like, you know, language. It was really interesting. And then you just see this word that's like feminist, I-N-G. So I don't remember the conversation that happened, but apparently we were
2: brainstorming. And, and, and I, I, I assume, and, and you can tell me if this is wrong, because maybe you had a, a, a grand a grand plan. But I assume when you start this blog, as it was for a lot of us, it's kind yeah. of a lark. You're not <laughs> totally. saying, here's a space in feminism, I'm going to occupy it. Right. But, but what was your... View of feminism at that moment, for particularly for young feminists, because you yeah. mentioned that sort of the leadership of some of these groups maybe was not that, did not treat young feminists the way yeah. they should be. That there are only a couple young feminist voices. <laughs> like, how did you see the the landscape at that moment?
3: It felt to me that there was a lot of excitement around feminism with younger women, but that wasn't necessarily being recognized. Mm -hmm. Working in the mainstream movement, all you would hear over and over again is like, oh, like younger women don't call themselves feminists. Younger women are not feminists. We need to make younger women feminists. And I was like, we are. I don't know what you're talking about. I see younger feminists all the time, but I think because they weren't in those traditionally, those traditional spaces like going to a now meeting, they were sort of invisible. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the the hope for the site was to create a space where younger feminists who like didn't necessarily have a platform, like weren't groomed by Gloria Steinem and had a space at Ms. Magazine could write and and say something. And also the hope back then, like feminism was still very much the F word. There was like a lot of anti-feminist stereotypes, you know, of feminists as humorless. So we wanted something that was like sarcastic and funny and fun.
2: I thought that was really, again, not knowing the sort of internals of movements from the way you did, but you guys from the start, and I don't remember exactly when mm-hmm. I started reading, but just like had a really striking voice. I mean, I remember yeah. this is around the time my younger sister, who ultimately is a, was a woman's studies major, went to college. And I was like, you have to read this yeah. blog Feministing because, I don't know, when I, to, to maybe digress here for a second. One of the first blogs I read was just a blogspot blog called Demosthenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was named after the Ender's Game character, I believe. And I remember reading that blog. It was just a blog about politics, right? Yeah. Some guy or some woman maybe writing about politics. And I remember that the writer used the word props in response to something. Right. And I remember it actually – it sounds so weird to say, but I remember it hitting me like a thunderbolt. Like right. I had never – seen or read someone write about politics in language totally that felt recognizable to me totally because like the language of op-ed pages and particularly then mm-hmm. the language of newspapers and op-ed pages was very formal it was this kind of like george will quoting from the 15th century <laughs> swedish you know parliament and that was really you know it made it feel like something that I could do. Like if, yeah. if you could write about politics in language, like maybe actually, like kids could write about politics, which is certainly how I saw myself at that time. And I remember thinking that about when I, yeah. you know, started recommending feministing to people that, like it 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 seemed to me to to have a language and like an internal culture right. you could see yourself fitting into in a way that like a lot of the stuff that i saw academically around because i was in college at that time did not feel that way
3: right well that was both a deliberate decision and a reaction i think to writing press releases all day long right <laughs> so like i both was like oh i like need to just write in the way that i speak but it was also a strategic decision in that I had just come out of grad school. I had gone for my master's in women's and gender studies and was considering going for a PhD, but ultimately decided not to because the theory was just so dense and all of the the language around feminism, you really had to go to college. You had to go to grad school to be able to, to access this sort of language. And for me, so much of my feminism came from my mom, who like barely graduated high school. It just ceased to be useful to me. So I also we wanted to write something. Someone with any level of education, any level of activist engagement, could come and and read and and get something out of.
2: When did you start recognizing that feministing would be a thing?
3: <laughs> there was a, a particular moment when you know we had comments, obviously, and we all had we all had comments, all had comments <laughs> then, and Katha Pollitt. <gasps> commented on one of the posts and we like got together like an emergency meeting we're like is it the real Katha Pollitt like do you think that Katha Pollitt actually reads feminine like we were so excited Katha
2: Pollitt the nation the, the nation this, yeah.
3: yeah who is a huge inspiration so we were freaking out we're like oh people are
2: actually reading this and did that change how you wrote did that change how you thought about it
3: It didn't because it seemed it seemed to be working. And at that time, you know, the the comment section was really fun and like sort of the, the men's rights folks hadn't quite caught on to us yet. And it was like a really vibrant, fun space.
0: Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W I S E.com. WISE.com. Support
4: for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. com slash box. So to to jump forward a little bit in time,
2: I think of a lot of what has sort of come after in feminist web citing, mm. feminist content creation, yeah. as in some ways, you know, inspired by mm-hmm. by those early sites, what do you think is different in terms of what someone who's reading Feministing thing or feminist or, you mm-hmm. know, the sort of other blogs in that ecosystem, <clears throat> what do you think is different from of what they got from what you get if you're a young woman who starts today reading Jezebel and Broadly and Bustle and these more professionalized mm. feminist, but not quite as explicitly so content places? Right. I don't mean content places in a bad way. It's just we're all multimedia now.
3: Yeah, 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 Well, I think what's interesting is like then feminist blogs were sort of like the insurgent like young writers and now feminist blogs are the mainstream and the insurgent like young activists and writers are on Tumblr and, and Twitter and spaces like that. I think it's really interesting that a lot of these folks have grown up with Feminism. I mean, the the strangest sort of turning point for me was realizing that younger feminists saw me as part of like the mainstream establishment, right? Right, and they're like, oh, but like you're like executive editor of feminist. I was like, what does that mean? Like, I never got paid. Like, we always this was always a side gig. Still, right. but at a certain point, like it did shift where feministing was was part of the the mainstream conversation in the same way that like Jezebel did that. So that was a really strange shift, but it's also really wonderful because it means that this, like, generation of young feminists grew up with that as the norm.
2: It's interesting because it feels to me in in the mainstream, non-mainstream distinction, Mm -hmm. you draw is an interesting one. There are a lot of discussions sort of happening right now Mm -hmm. today that I try to think about them in terms of what the political fights and contexts were like when, you know, in 2003, 2004. And one of them is the political correctness discussion, mm. which I think is interesting in that it very much sees, I think, feminism and feminist ideas and feminist language as attaining a hegemonic status mm-hmm. in American life mm-hmm. that is nearly impossible to challenge. And almost putting aside whether that's true or untrue, it would have been so weird to have that argument in 2003 and 2004, mm-hmm. right? As you say, like, you were trying to say, like, people can call themselves feminist. Right. And now there seems to be a presidential candidacy as far as, you know, based mm-hmm. on the idea that you're not allowed to not call yourself a feminist and you right. should be able to. On the one hand, a lot of what's going on is depressing. But I'm curious if you see that as some kind of victory or something darker. Well,
3: no, I mean, we're we're fighting about it. And that's OK, right? Like it's part of the it's part of the conversation, which is a lot more than we could say 10 years ago. So I don't mind that, like the, the political correctness stuff, like, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's hash it out. Like, at least we're actually having the conversation rather than the conversation being like, oh, feminists are like miserable, unmarried truths, right? Like that was the conversation 10 years ago. So the fact that it shifted so much, I I mean, I'm also just like an eternal optimist, despite the tone of the book. I'm actually an <laughs>
2: eternal optimist. Are there places where within the, the political correctness discussion, mm-hmm. Because I think that discussion is so ill-defined, like the set of Mm. practices people end up talking about Mm -hmm. when they talk about political Mm -hmm. correctness. Are there places where where you feel uncomfortable, where you've come to feel like the old uh, centrist?
3: Of course, of course. But I think that that's part of the point, right? right? Like that's like the natural progression and evolution of things. And I should feel uncomfortable and I should feel like those young whippersnappers don't know what the hell they're talking about, like. I'm sort of OK with occupying that position because mm-hmm. I think that that back and forth and that argument is part of progressing the movement. But I also think that, like, the, the stuff that gets the most attention is not necessarily – you know, like, all this, like, stuff about trigger warnings. How many colleges, like, actually implement really serious – like, they they just don't. This is not, like, a real – issue, but it's like very exciting for people to talk about. So I just don't know how real a lot of the the controversy is. Like, yeah, you can like make fun of teenagers on Tumblr, but is that like really what you want to spend your time doing? They're trying to work it out, you know?
2: What do you think the trigger warning fight is about on both sides? If that question makes sense.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think for, for feminists, it's about just an acknowledgement that that some conversations can be harder than others. and It's like a heads up, right? Like, I don't see a trigger warning as like, oh, like, don't read this, don't do this. And that's why a lot of places use content warnings. It's like, hey, like, this might be
2: a little upsetting. I remember buying CDs as a kid.
3: Right, like parental advice. Yeah, they had these
2: little trigger warnings on them for my parents.
3: Right, and now, like, (laughs) and on the other side, it's, oh, this is censorship, they're going to, you know, uh, if you have trigger warnings on a syllabus, the kids are, you know, going to say, like, I'm not going to read that because for this reason and that reason. I'm sort of like, I come down somewhere in the middle, which is like I always think it's nice to give people a heads up if something is, like, outrageously upsetting, of course. But if you're actually talking about trauma, PTSD, People's actual triggers differ so tremendously mm-hmm. from from person to person that that's actually not a like a useful exercise. Like as someone who had some PTSD after my kid was born, I remember having like a really bad anxiety episode, and I couldn't figure out what had happened and like what you know, like what had sparked it because it was years after my daughter was born. and a couple of hours later, I heard a truck outside beeping, and the truck had been beeping for a few hours, and I realized, oh, that's what it was because it reminded me of the beeping um, of the the machines in the oh, wow. in the NICU That's very individualized to me like there are certain things that are going to bring people back to a to a traumatic experience and so I don't know how
2: you know useful they are in I, practice I feel like there have become two versions of the political correctness debate mm-hmm. that are happening simultaneously. One version strikes me as a new front in a war that was like very big in the 80s and early mm-hmm. 90s which is sort of academic. Academic theory, academic practices. And this is something right. that is tremendously interesting to people who went to like really good colleges. Right. And, you know, back then you had yeah. it around postmodernism and feminist theory and, and, and these different things. And, and I went to Santa Cruz, right. which had had a lot of that and still did when I was there. So a lot of this stuff feels not at all new to me, which always makes me a little confused by its resurgence. But But I think there's one side of it, which is another way to put it, is... Practices on the frontier
3: mm-hmm.
2: of the possible, right? People who are trying to institute new ways of talking about potentially uh, upsetting content. People right. trying to implement new ways of talking about and think about transgender rights. Mm-hmm. Things that the the country doesn't really have an accepted, defined discourse around, and, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of a lot of friction there. And then I feel like there's this other thing that we are now talking about as political within the presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. And like Donald Trump doesn't talk about trigger warnings. Right. He says immigrants are rapists or like the Hispanic judge has to accuse himself because yeah. uh, he has a Mexican heritage despite being born in Indiana. And I think there's something interesting there in the way that a debate that I think at the elite level, it takes place around, as you say, these fairly minor practices like trigger warnings mm-hmm. then gets transmuted into what I sort of sometimes wonder is what it really is, which is a debate about much more fundamental conflicts about rights that we sometimes think are settled in American life, but actually are not.
3: Right. I mean, he. I think he's tapping in to a feeling that a lot of white men are having you know that's backlash related to all of the conversations around race and and gender it's been, i mean it's been totally fascinating to watch but really really depressing but i also i feel like when i when i listen to donald trump like he reminds me of like every dude in a comment section except he doesn't have anonymity and i think that that's what's so exciting to other people right like he's saying like what all these dudes say in comment threads you know um except like he's completely proud to say it and is getting a platform to say it
2: how do you think that the internet is different for this kind of debate when it moved from comment sections to social media? Because I think something changed there. Not that comment sections didn't have their Mm -hmm. horrors; Certainly they did. Mm -hmm. And certainly yours did. Yeah. But Donald Trump, I was thinking of as a creation of Twitter in a way.
3: Mm -hmm. In terms of the backlash question, I think what I saw was that trolling became an identity and not just a thing you do. When it transferred from comments that's sections super to social media, comments was just something that you participated in. Social media is is something that you are, and so all of a sudden now, like on Twitter, like people have whole accounts that are dedicated to just being a misogynist asshole, and so it became, I think, a lot more emotional for some of these folks, and a, and a huge part of who they are, for for better or worse, mostly worse. Well, and
2: I think that's a, I, I think that's a really profound point about this, and and I've never thought about it that way, but. Related to that, when you did this in a comment section, mm-hmm. your audience was primarily hostile. Mm-hmm. And when you do it on social media, your audience is actually primarily applauding you, right? Yeah, you're you're upload you're, you're, you're creating, But you're creating your own follower sets, right? Because, yep. I mean, there are a lot of these trolls that have followers of other like-minded folks. You know, they sometimes direct. I mean, you have sort of troll celebrities.
3: Right. And this is, again, I think a reaction to feminist spaces being seen as the mainstream because then it allows these people to position themselves as like the oppressed minority in like a against the terrible feminist overlords i see it again and again especially on social media now like the latest place you know obviously twitter harassment is very bad and that's what everyone talks about but the place that i get the worst harassment now is on instagram
2: so i follow you on instagram yeah and it is so fucking jarring. Yeah. It's so much more jarring than it is in other spaces.
3: It's well because it's like I'm posting a picture of my dinner. Yeah, and someone's like, "Hey, cunt."
2: Yeah, <laughs> you know? it is. I, I've seen this happen a bunch of times. So it'll be just like the most adorable domestic like <laughs> picture. <laughs> And so Instagram is really the only social network I personally enjoy. Yeah. Because it is it often seems like such like an easy, like totally. chill space. You know, the only thing you can do is heart and I, I mean right. it really has built itself to be yeah. they don't allow you to broadcast, right? You right. you know, you actually you can't have things go viral in the way yep. you can on other on other platforms. And I, I think they've done that and really have kept a, a personal feeling to it. And then, and I've started having a bit of this too, but I, I see it much more on, on your feed. Like when you put up some, Instagram is a place you get the most personal and still a semi-public yeah. way. Or I shouldn't say you, I do. Yeah. And when that is interrupted, it feels very different. Yeah. I mean, I've not looked, I don't look at my Twitter mentions and haven't in five years. That's Like very I smart. just fucking do not. Yeah. I don't look at Facebook comments. I just don't need yeah. that chaos totally. in my life like good or bad. Totally. But Instagram it's like I expect like, you know, my friends and family to comment and when when you right. see it happen there it is a different kind of thing.
3: It's very strange and I think I think there's a couple of reasons for it. One is that a lot of the the trollish Instagram users are very young. They're, like, 13 to 17 whenever I, like, sort of follow their – go back and look at their profiles. So I think part of it's that, like, they're young and they're making mistakes. And But I think there's also something to the idea of on Twitter or in other places, it's easier to, like – for my work, for example, to see me as, like, a set of controversial headlines yeah. rather than a person. So it's, like, it messes with their sort of point of view about who I am. They're, like, oh, like, here's this person who's, like, a mom and cooking dinner or, like, having a barbecue – with her family and like, but she's not allowed to, to be a happy, you know, married mother that completely is at odds with what I think about, you know, feminism.
2: So to do an empathy exercise here, because you and I have probably listened to some of these same pieces where people go and like they talk to their, their worst trolls and there's yeah. just some like person. Yeah. If you were to try to give this a, a sympathetic spin, right, if you were to try to ask yourself totally. like, what is, what is happening here <clears throat> where folks are the hero of their own story? Yeah. Right. We're getting on your Instagram and underneath a picture of you like you helping your daughter blow out her birthday cake. Yeah. Like just like a string of horrifying profanity. Yeah. What do you think is is there that should be, if anything, that should be understood as opposed to simply condemned?
3: I mean, I think people are in pain, like all of us are in pain in one way or another. Um, And I think that that some people don't handle that pain as well as others, you know, that doesn't mean that I think that, like, there's an excuse for it or that, like, some people aren't just terrible mean people. And I tend to think that that's true, especially of a lot of, like, the older trolls. But with with younger guys, especially and teenagers, I think that they are trying to sort it out. Like, they are trying to work out their feelings around masculinity and women. And when they come into spaces, um, online spaces, that are like, all of these complicated feelings you're having are because women won't fuck you or because mm-hmm. feminists are, are telling these lies. That's a really simple answer for really complicated feelings that they're right. having. And so I think that that's part of it. Lindy West did a great, she did a This American Life on approaching one of her trolls. I've had similar stuff happen. Like I had a, a kid who was threatening me and I contacted his family And they sort of made him apologize to me. And as it turned out, his sister had just died a few Mm -hmm. weeks earlier. Again, that doesn't excuse it, but it's like people are in pain and they're acting out.
2: The invocation of pain there is interesting. I mean, something that I have seen more and more of traveling around the internet, Mm. and and this is not from just trolls, right? This is from people who are talking, I think, in a less trollish way about political correctness and, and broader questions about the discourse. And something I see a lot is a real frustration over what they consider to be oversimplified ideas of what the power dynamics really are, Mm -hmm. right? And I think you see this in particular. You see a lot of, like, young folks who self-identify as nerds Mm -hmm. and who say, I get bullied constantly. I am alone in ways that society tells me, like, completely take away my self-worth. Mm-hmm. And then I come online and I keep just being told, I am the power, I am the power, I am mm-hmm. the power, my experience is not valid. And how do you think about those kinds of overlapping power and lack of power? I mean, there are so many ways that we take and give up status in our lives. Totally. And sometimes we talk about it in one, but I often feel like a lot of that pain is motivated by people saying, like, no, you don't understand. Like, I am actually powerless and don't know what to do about it or feel powerless and don't know what to do about it.
3: I think part of the problem is that we haven't found a way to translate the difference between, like, individual versus systemic power and, and the way that that functions. Not that I think we need to give people a break because, like, I don't. People can be jerks. But I do think that we need to understand, like, it can be hard for people who are feminists? Who are political? You know, like yeah. to understand that it was a really hard thing for me to understand as a person who felt relatively powerless to understand at a certain point. Like, hey, I'm writing books. I have a big platform. I have a lot of power. Like this is this yeah. is you know not the same as it as it was. That can be a difficult thing to recognize when in your everyday life you don't feel it. So I do think that we need to do a better job sort of distinguishing for people. But that can be hard to do when it's not a conversation, but it's, you know, someone screaming at you online.
2: Yeah, it is, I think, one of the things that feels most different to me. The first five years as I had as a writer and like the <clears> last however many, six or seven, where then it felt like the people who were arguing with me or didn't like me, they wanted a response. Mm-hmm. And if you responded, you could have a a, a dialogue, whereas at a certain point it flipped. And as Mm -hmm. you say, like, I kind of became like a jumble of headlines. Right. And that there's no way really to have a dialogue. And so certainly I'll say only for myself that in a lot of these cases, I just shut myself off from it. Like, I just don't read the mentions or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, to your point, I also feel that that approach worsens the problem in some fundamental way, that it makes me seem more aloof. It makes me mm-hmm. seem – I'm only speaking for myself here – but it makes me seem more unwilling to hear dissent, whatever. And and I've my – you know, I certainly, like, read a lot of this stuff, so I do hear it. But there's something in there in, in terms of, like, what you end up feeling your responsibilities are to that conversation that's very hard to navigate, I find.
3: Totally. And I'm sort of – like, what's difficult is I'm on the cusp of doing what you do and completely, like, shutting myself off to it. Like, for a long time, I've really – held back from that because I do feel like a lot of my readers are younger feminists. Like I'd like having Mm -hmm. a back and forth with them, but I do have to sort of navigate all this horror to, to get there. And I do worry about like, Oh, it's like now like she's too good. Like to even respond or to like check her mentions. Right. Like I get that. But the truth is that like anyone with a certain follower count or like public facing profile gets dehumanized to a certain extent online. Like you're not a per you know what I mean? There's yeah. literally nothing I could say to some people that would make them satisfied with my response because I am literally not a person to them. I am a caricature of, of um, what a feminist is.
2: Right. No, I mean, it's such an interesting thing. I remember it, it happened when I was at, Late in my my job at the American Prospect, and I was, I think we used to call it fisking, right, in the (laughs) blogosphere? When you, like, went paragraph (laughs) by paragraph and attacked something, like, in, like, a super vicious way. And somebody who I did this to, like, emailed me, and and they kind of said, the people you attack read you now. Totally. And care what you think. And in a way that maybe is corrupting, that had a huge effect on me. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I realized like I had not thought of them as reading me. I kind of thought of this as for my little audience, Absolutely. not for the people. And it, and I, I realized like okay, like if I, like one, if I'm going to be read by them, like I better be sure I'm being kind of fair to them because like, right. this can ruin my day. I'm sure it can ruin theirs. Right. You know, it was very strange for me to to make that transition, like from a blogger who did not feel like the people I was attacking would read me and so did not really feel like they would care. And so did right. not feel bound by normal laws of civility and in, mm-hmm. in, in the way you would talk to someone who you're actually talking to. And then to like then to ultimately end up on the other side of that myself. Um, which again is not something I'm lamenting. Like I'm, you know, I've yeah, chosen the sure. career I have, like I'm and I'm and I'm happy for it. But it's just such a different thing to engage with or, or try to figure out to disengage with. And to your point about pulling back. You know, for me, a lot of the reason I ended up thinking that was a good idea was just that in terms of serving the bulk of my audience, which is mostly people who are not tweeting at me, mostly people who are not, even the people who are nicely tweeting at me, yeah, just mostly just readers, right, or or, or watchers or listeners or whatever, I would not have like the capacity if I let all the feedback come too close. Like I would totally. lose my ability to actually say the things I wanted to say and think clearly, because I think that amount of feedback, I've said this on the podcast before, I don't think human beings are built for that amount of feedback, like whatever, we're built for communities of 300 people, right? Is that the (laughs) line? I do not think we're built for the amount of feedback you can get now on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and comment sections and emails. It's just too much. And I think you, like I found myself anyway, like losing my own sense of, What I thought, or who I was, or what I was trying to achieve, other than turning the dial of that feedback Mm -hmm. away from negative and towards positive. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult
3: because, like, on a purely career level, it would be really difficult for me to just stop doing that. Like, right, like Twitter is the the biggest platform that I have. My publisher would be furious if I stopped checking mentions. Right, like, I wonder what impact it would have on my on my writing career. But you're right. Like, I don't think that we're built for that. But in a strange way. All of that feedback and harassment, I think, was in big part why I decided to write this book now and like why it came out because I just got to that sort of crisis point where I was like, ah, like I need to do something with myself. So maybe in some way
2: it was positive. What was the first chapter of this book that you wrote? You told me that some of this came Mm -hmm. about organically. You were writing for yourself on the side of catharsis. What was the first chapter that emerged?
3: It was Line Violence, which is the, the first essay in the book. Which is about generational, generational sexual violence and my family and my feelings about being a mom and sort of feeling powerless to stop the bad stuff that happens to girls from potentially happening to my daughters. So that I I had written that and it was actually a lot. More depressing than it, is, than, it, than it is now, which doesn't say a lot. Um, and, and, I, and I toned it back a bit. And I remember Andrew, uh, my husband, reading it. He's like, oh, he's like, this is this is really hard to read." And I was
2: like, "I'm going to keep doing it. Was, it." was it hard for Andrew to read the book?
3: I think it was very hard for him to read the book. I think he was proud of me and was happy that I was doing it. But he loves me and it's, it's you know, I think that there's a lot of pain shines through in the book. And so I think that that's hard to see, like knowing that your partner is in pain. And then, of course, there's just like, you know, some random stuff about him that was hard for him to read personally.
4: <laughs> Support for The Gray Area comes from green light. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
1: Vacations can be tricky. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: I don't want to ask exactly what is the message of the book, but the book Mm -hmm. is told through a series of stories. And the stories have a very common set of themes. But you write in the beginning, I think, like really powerfully about specific ways in which this book is for your daughter and, mm-hmm. and the world you want her to inhabit and the and the person you want her to be. And so what is the effect you're hoping this book has on a 15-year-old who reads it?
3: It's such a hard question. I mean, I think that the best I can hope for is, like, the message I wish I would have gotten when I was 15, which is that the world is messy and so, like, expect to be a mess yourself. I don't think I was fully prepared for how much I would blame myself for not handling a really chaotic world. Things can be very tough for women, but we're meant to just like live in it and go through it day to day without sort of showing any showing impact or, or, mm-hmm. or being for the, worse for the wear, which I don't think is is realistic. And I think women carry around a lot of self-doubt and self-hatred for not handling it better when in fact we should not be handling it like it is it is terrible and it's okay to feel really fucked up about it
2: the thing that the book i think did super well and the thing that's i think really hard and important to read as a male reader of the book Mm -hmm. is the unrelentingness of it yeah i mean what you done in the book is pull stories out of a lot of different phases of your life, a lot of different spaces you're in from school to the subway to Mm -hmm. the professional world. You know, things of varying levels of goodness or awfulness happen. But what it made me think about a lot reading it was the unrelentingness of being viewed specifically as a woman or as a book's title, as a a sex object, which I really don't think is an experience men, even if they haven't noticed. Right, right. Like I had like plenty of my problems growing up and was bullied and sure. you know had all kinds of shit, but I did not have a single unrelenting way I was continuously viewed and treated. Right, that was less than the sum of my parts in the same fashion every single time for decades and decades.
3: And that's the thing is like how can you. And that's the question I was really trying to get at with, with Layla. My daughter is like, how can I prepare her for that? I don't have the language for that, right? Like, we don't have language to explain what that feels like, what that is, what that means, especially because it is so unrelenting It and differs from, from space to space. It's really easy to say, like, oh, if you're on the subway, like, a guy may flash you and that's going to feel terrible. But, like, how do you connect that and relate that? To look, she'll get or a small comment that a teacher might make. It's really difficult to to articulate, especially when you're thinking about
2: kids and growing up. Well, there's a, a weird and to me really chilling privacy to that experience. Mm-hmm. So I think of this all the time in the catcalls discussion. Mm-hmm. My wife and and every woman I know in D.C. talks a lot about being catcalled, particularly walking around at night alone. Yeah. And it is a case that in all the years I have walked around with my wife or with other female friends or women Mm -hmm. I dated, I don't think I've ever heard a catcall happen near me. Right. Or at least not to the person I was with. Right, right, right. And the omnipresence of that experience mixed with the total, total absence, absence of it. From <laughs> yeah. my life. Yeah. It has always been such a shocking thing to me. Yeah. One thing about it, and I think one thing about a lot of the moments in this book are they happen very privately. Yeah. Right? It's like something that happens in an instant on a subway. And it's one way in which I think, you know, it's something I've certainly been sensitized to in recent years, but how much of this I just don't see, men just don't see. It's not mm-hmm. like you see the world and you're just. Yeah. You've got the picture, but you're not interpreting right. You're just not seeing a lot of the picture.
3: I'm so glad that you brought this up because it's it's something that happens privately, but in public spaces, right? So it's yeah. happening privately, but it's happening publicly as well, which is part of what I think makes it so difficult because those are public spaces. You're supposed to be able to walk through public spaces with a certain level of safety. And I do think that it's, that it's somewhat invisible to men. I've had this experience more than once with Andrew and with, with other guys I've dated where I've been catcalled and the guy I was standing with haven't noticed because not that it was like some screaming guy from across the street, but like a guy, like you're walking in one direction with, with your partner and a guy is walking in another direction. And as you walk by him, he says something really softly in your ear or oh, no. he like gives you a look and you know exactly what that look means. Or he licks his lips in a certain way. Gross. Yeah, totally gross. And I've ha- and I'm, there's a, and- there's
2: a non-podcastable wince. <one>.
3: And I remember, say, like, saying, like, did you just fucking see that? And he's like, no, what do you mean? Like, what are you, what are you talking about? And I think part of that is, like, why would Andrew or any other guy, like, be paying close attention to, to the man who's walking towards us? Like, women have been trained to be on guard. Like, I can tell, and I wrote this in the book, I can tell from a half a block away when a guy is going to say something disgusting yeah. to me. Like, you can just tell. And I know that I'm not alone in feeling this. And so we are— sort of been trained to, to notice it more.
2: But that, that training to be on guard, that seemed like the the one of the truly terrible costs. So uh, one of the writers at Vox mm-hmm. was a, I say was because she's at the New York Times now, mm-hmm. but a tremendous writer named Amanda Taub. And she talked about what she called the consent tax. Mm-hmm. But she talked about a lot of this stuff as a tax, that yeah. there is this small tax that is Put on a lot of women all the time, the tax of being on guard in public, which takes energy, the tax of making sure that, you know, when you're at a conference, you're not left alone in a room with a guy, you know, just like the tax of having to watch all this stuff. And, And like a lot of taxes, even if it's not a high payment at any given moment, it really, really, really adds up.
3: Yeah. There are researchers who study something called objectification theory, which is like the way in which women react to being sexually objectified and start to see themselves from sort of like a third person point of view. And they've been able to like directly link it to anxiety, depression, psychological distress. Like these things have tangible impacts.
2: There's a set of research I've been following recently, and it's actually about – some it's done by over at the World Bank, um, mm-hmm. uh, among others by a friend of mine, um, Bilal Siddiqui, that is about actually truth and reconciliation commissions mm-hmm. in other countries. And what it found was that on the one hand, reliving these experiences for these commissions does lead to more forgiveness, does lead to more right. um, reconciliation, but it also leads to more trauma, more anxiety, mm-hmm. more upset, that, that the experience of of actually – of not suppressing what is going on right. has real negative, really genuinely right. negative impacts. And I, I wonder a bit about that in terms of this discussion. Something that is, I think has really happened in the last, let's say, 10, 20 years has been a sensitization of, among other things, very specifically, women to what's going on, right? Seeing this stuff is not normal, it's not okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wonder if you think that, not at all trying to say that it's not good that this stuff is being called sure. out and made clear, but that the experience of having to see it as like a real thing that is being done all the time, do you think that has made it harder?
3: I think in some ways, yes, but in most ways, no. I mean, I think that, yes, it's always going to feel painful to talk about these issues to 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 relive them but it's much better to do that in a group right and not mm-hmm. feel and not feel alone about it and i think that that's why like you saw that hashtag yes all women take off yeah. in the way that it did because i think for a lot of a lot of women and i've heard this a lot from older women who I've spoken to, it was just because it was not something that you talked about. They thought it was something that was wrong with them, that they were like attracting this sort of behavior in a way that other women weren't. So I think that the act of talking about it can be incredibly helpful on a more sort of like existential level, maybe not like in that
2: moment. And do you think that the act of talking about it and calling it out more and having it more as part of the discourse Mm -hmm. is... Changing anything about it is lessing. I mean, do you? I, I guess a different way of putting the question, and a more simple one is: Yeah, do you think this stuff is getting better? Not laws, but actually yeah. the way it is to be a woman in high school.
3: Not yet. I mean, I think what we're seeing right now is like a lot of women are telling their stories. I feel like we're in the midst of the the backlash to their to those stories, where a lot of people are like talking about women only writing first-person essays and this is so frivolous and this is so superficial and women should be writing about more serious stuff as if women's experiences are not serious and important. I do think, though, we're going to hit a a tipping point with it. And I am starting to sort of see that in high schools and like it's it's a small thing, but I think it's sort of crazy. Like just watching on Tumblr, the amount of high school girls who are like protesting their dress codes which is, like, such, like, it's, like, one very specific issue, but they get it. They're, like, protesting in a way, like, where they really get it, where they're saying, like, my body is not a distraction to a boy's learning. What's a distraction to learning is a girl being pulled out of her class and made to change into, a like, a sweatsuit mm-hmm. because you can't handle seeing, like, some bare shoulders. So I do feel like things are getting better, but just in a slow way.
2: You brought up Tumblr a couple of times, and it's something yeah. that we have I've not talked about on the show at all, in part because I don't feel like I fully understand it myself. Nor something do I. Something that happened, in, maybe nobody <laughs> does, something that happened in the last three or four years, as far as I can tell, is that Tumblr has become the locus of a lot of what gets grouped is these social justice conversations. Totally. It's a space that happens, I think, outside. The media is pretty good now at watching Mm -hmm. Twitter, pretty good at watching Facebook, and has no idea how to watch Tumblr. I mean, some places like BuzzFeed (laughs) are pretty good at it, but but a lot of us aren't. Why do you think Tumblr has emerged in in this way? And like, what should people kind of culturally think about it?
3: I mean, I think it's because people are not watching it as as closely as why teenagers Uh love it so much and it has the, the power that it does. People should watch it because that is where, where young people are learning about these issues. Ask a group of, like, teenagers or even, like, college freshmen where they first learned the term rape culture. None of them will say school. They will all say Tumblr. I've asked this question again and again. Like, this is the entry point to the conversation mm-hmm. for them. So if we care about what that conversation looks like and how that conversation is being shaped, then we need to be there.
2: To go back to the question a second go on the other side of the are things getting better, What have you thought watching the Hillary Clinton campaign?
3: Oh, so many things. So many things. I mean, again, being an eternal optimist, I'd like to think that, you know, her running against like basically like a misogynist supervillain will do something to open up the the national conversation on gender, hopefully in a way that is a little bit more nuanced than in 2008 when the conversation was really about like, much more explicit sexism right it was like the iron my shirt and the her cackling laugh mm-hmm. the conversation was like trying to make people understand that that was sexist and now it's about sort of the more insidious sexism i feel hopeful that the that the conversation will happen. But I am also just scared. I'm just really scared to see. I think that I've always had like a creeping suspicion that like people are a lot more misogynist than I'd like to think, right? Like at the heart of it, most of the time, I'm pretty optimistic. And I'm like, no, if, P- if you just explain to people, they would understand. And now with Trump, it's like, oh, maybe that's maybe that's not true. Maybe people really do think this. And that's a, a distressing
2: thought to have. Before putting Trump aside for a minute, yeah. I feel like there's a, a question that gets asked a lot. Which is our reactions to Clinton herself? Let's say maybe gendered to be more mm-hmm. gentle about it, and, and and to ask the question maybe in a in a sharper way. There's the sort of counterfactual of Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. or of Amy Klobuchar mm-hmm. or of someone else, right? Which is in this question of, you know, Hillken is this incredibly intensely polarizing politician, like the mm-hmm. least popular nominee ever in polling aside from Donald Trump, who is the most right. unpopular nominee ever in polling. And, and one thing you'll hear is that the reason, you know, Hillary Clinton is so polarizing is because she's been a woman in the public eye and pretty a woman in the public eye yeah. for a long period for of time. Life. But people say, no, no, it's just it's not a gendered thing. Elizabeth Warren's favorables look very different. And if she had run or one of these other women mm-hmm. had run, we'd be having a, a fully different conversation. Which side of that do you fall on.
3: Somewhere in the middle, like, I don't buy this idea that, like, if it was Elizabeth Warren, like, sexism wouldn't be an issue. Like, I just don't buy it. Like, there would there would be something. It might look different than the way that we talk about Hillary Clinton, because as you said, she's been in the public eye for so long, but, like, I 100% don't buy it. And I also don't think that people can separate out the sexism that neatly. I think that people would like to think that they can. So much, so much misogyny is really... Unconscious, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not. You can still be sexist and not call Hillary a bitch, right? Right? Like there are lots of ways to, to be sexist. So no, like I don't. I just don't buy it.
2: What is a way that you think that sort of unconscious sexism or, or unconscious bias? Manifested that people are not paying attention to. Like, as you said, I think there's now a discourse that when somebody says, oh, Hillary Clinton should stop shouting or she should right. smile more, people are say, no, that's – shut up. That's incredibly sexist. She's standing right. next to Bernie Sanders. He is – he does not – and God bless him for it. He does right. not not shout. But what are the things that you think don't get – not just called out, but don't get noticed, that are, are structuring people's perceptions here but are not being understood for what they are.
3: Right. I mean, there's a lot of little things. I think one thing that that I've been thinking a lot about is this question of, like, her ambition or mm-hmm. wanting it too badly and this criticism of, like, Ugh, like she just wants it so badly. And it's like, yeah, like, she's running for president. Like, people tend to to want that. Like, you have to be super ambitious. But just, like, the inability to interrogate what it is that we find so like viscerally distasteful about a woman really wanting power,
2: right? Or like saying
3: that someone is is power hungry?
2: Do you think that only happens to women? I mean, I, I've heard. No, this I think thing, that because, happens. Like, I remember a lot of talk of like Obama, like people like Obama in kindergarten wrote an essay about how he wanted to be president. <laughs> Mitt Romney got a lot of shit for like sure. people believing he was like a robot programmed for the presidency, like early in the I guess construction phase. On the one hand, I'm I. Agree with that. And on the other hand, I don't know what to think about that. Right. Like, I don't know why we think people shouldn't want to be president right. in the it's, first place. It's, it's like I weird. They
3: better want to be president. They, like, really <laughs> better want it very badly.
2: We seem to want somebody who just, like, woke up one day and is like, eh, all right. <laughs> this, this is good. Let's do it. Um, yes. Like, we
3: critique men for, for wanting something. But we, I don't think that we, like, emotionally feel the same disdain for them uh-huh. that we do for – like, and I think that that – like, that emotional reaction – is, is the issue. And like, I have seen this a bit on the left recently, like, let's say not with Hillary Clinton, but with like attacking professional feminists, like professional feminist writers, and I won't name any names to bring any more attention to them. But I've seen them like attacked from the left, because they went on a particular vacation, or they're making a certain amount of money. And the distaste was just palpable. It was like, how dare you have access to this kind of power? Or make money or live in a nice house. And I just don't see that same thing happening to male writers.
2: Well, there was that sort of horrible thing recently with Tanasi Coates.
3: That was, yes, that was absolutely horrible. But that that wasn't like he doesn't deserve to to live there. That was just people being really, really stupid and not understanding the way that harassment and, and threats work online.
2: Yeah, I think there's a fucking lot of that. Um, but I, I do think the, the point you just brought up is interesting. One of the things I've been thinking about a bit just watching the primary was thinking about the emotional registers that mm-hmm. – People are allowed to go into. And think about the way in which it was much remarked on that a quality Obama has is a preternatural cool. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean cool in the sense of what a cool guy. I mean yeah, cool yeah, in the yeah. sense of like you cannot ruffle him. Mm-hmm. Right. He has a a a calm that is almost right. otherworldly. And people saying like this is because, in part, if you are going to be an African-American man, like achieving at the level he is and sure. trailblazing in the way he did, sure, you are not going to be able to present as angry. Like you just can't. You have to right. learn how to not do that. And this seems to me to be true a bit for Clinton too. And and I think it, it connects to something I've been trying to think through because I feel this too, right? Mm-hmm. I am I can look at Clinton and think like there does feel to me like an inauthenticity there. A, a, and, and then you talk to people who work for her and they feel that she's the most warm, normal person. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder <laughs> how much of this is that a candidate like Donald Trump or a candidate like Bernie Sanders can exist in very unusual emotional registers emotional registers you would not run into in normal life yeah. but that a candidate like Obama or Clinton a candidate dealing with other racial or gendered stereotypes has to force themselves into a more narrow band of uh, of emotional reaction and in doing, then when you people, they look artificial to people, well, yeah, they're having to put a lot of caps on how they feel about things.
3: Absolutely. I mean, it's almost like I sort of—especially, like, with Sanders and Clinton, like, debating, you can almost see, like, the invisible box around her, right, like, in terms of physical space. Like, Sanders has the ability to, like, wave his arms and, like, just, like, wildly, like, go nuts with his body language and, and everything like that. Like, he has this freedom of physical movement— Right. That Clinton could never do. Like if her arms went outside of this invisible box space, it would be like, ah, she's making a move for you. Like, watch <laughs> out. Just in, in physical ways and emotional ways. Like, yes, absolutely. I do think that Clinton is not as natural a politician as other people. But I I think that what you're saying is a, is a big part so of that. So
4: let me ask you the, uh, the
2: flip of that then. Barack Obama has said before that when people talk about the way race played into his election, he mm-hmm. said, look, there were ways in which it hurt me. There's no doubt And he said there are ways in which it helped me. There Mm. were a lot of people excited about the first African-American president. And I think it is fair to say that there has not been a commensurate amount of excitement, a a feeling of firstness, a feeling of this being a historic legacy campaign Mm -hmm. around Clinton and and the first female president. Mm -hmm. Do you think that is something about the first female president? Do you think it's something about Hillary Clinton and the fact that we know so much about her. She can't sort of act as a vessel for, you know, ideas about America the way Obama could, who just had less yeah. baggage. Or do you think, like, that I'm totally off base and there is the same amount of excitement? I
3: think I think that there's a lot of excitement, but there's, like, a, a generational excitement gap, unfortunately. And I think that that has to do with some younger women feeling like they're going to see a female president in their lifetime. And so they're not as— revved up about it, but I do think it also has to do with, like, the particular space that, that gender occupies right now, unfortunately. But... Maybe there's like a generational gap with like younger women who can vote, but in my daughter's kindergarten class, the the young women there are very excited, I can say. <laughs> there's a lot of excitement
2: on like the the very young people level. Damn those closed primaries where yes. kindergarteners can. It's like
3: it's, it's very, very <laughs> funny to watch these conversations happen when like Layla came home, she's like so-and-so is voting for Trump. And I was like, really? Like, who are her parents again? Like, (laughs) give me their (laughs) names. It is sort of strange to watch, but I come from, like, a strange point of view on it because I voted for Obama in 2008, and I didn't feel that sense of excitement around around Hillary, and I wasn't thinking about the first female president in the same way that I am now. And I have no idea if that has to do with... uh, my political progression or my age i think it's probably the the latter i'm getting a lot more impatient and ornery um <laughs> as i as i close in on 40 and so yeah i mean I, I would i would like to see more excitement
2: do you think that there is how much of this do you think is systemic and how much of it do you think is particular do you think if mm-hmm. this had been the candidacy of another woman, a woman who maybe burst onto the scene more recently, like an Elizabeth Warren, we would see more of that? I just don't know.
3: I don't think so. I mean, I think part of the conversation I'm seeing happen right now is this idea that part of being a good, this is just like one conversation that's happening, part of being a good feminist is like not seeing gender right, mm-hmm. um, when you're voting which feels really short-sighted and, and strange to me.
2: What would be the Walk me through that argument a little bit.
3: Well, just meaning that a real feminist vote is for the most feminist candidate regardless of Mm -hmm. gender. But from my point of view, you know, taking gender into account when you're voting and the abysmal political representation that we have when it comes to women is a really really important part of of politics as well and not like a soft issue not oh. like a superficial issue it's not that i'm like vain and want to see myself reflected in a powerful position it's a real political issue like on on the world stage we do terribly like we have terrible political representation when it comes to women that is a real issue but it's been really interesting to see making that argument and having people take that to mean gender is the only issue I care about. So if you care about gender at all, it must mean it's it's the only thing that's driving you.
2: So you've written how many books now? Uh, this will be my fifth. What is the best advice you've ever gotten about writing a book?
3: Oh, goodness. Well, this is the, the, the best career advice I've gotten. And I've taken this to heart when writing a book that anything worth doing is is something that's going to make you feel like you're going to throw up.
2: <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, yeah.
3: which But which has 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 been true, which has been true for me. I definitely feel like I'm today is uh, that the day that we're talking is pub day for the book. I, I felt oh, nauseous exciting. all morning. Yeah.
2: That's such an interesting idea. So uh, I because I, I struggle with this a bit the stuff I'm doing now, I find much harder than things I did. Yeah. You know, in, in previous in previous guises of my of my work. And, you know, there is there is this kind of line of thought that, If it's hurting, it's better. Yeah. I always wonder that. I always wonder if I'm not just doing something wrong and that's why it's hurting.
3: (laughs) No, I think like – I think if you're challenging yourself, like you should be uncomfortable, like even physically uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. When things get too easy – I mean, maybe this is not, like, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Like, perhaps this is not, like, the best work-life balance advice, (laughs) right? It's like, oh, make sure you're always feeling a little uncomfortable and a little on edge. But it's actually, like, whenever I feel comfortable in a position, it's when I'm not, like, doing my best. Mm -hmm. And whenever I feel uncomfortable, it's because I'm tapping into something that I think is important.
2: How did you develop your book voice, the way in which I ask that is thinking back to feministing. Mm-hmm. It had this sort of very yeah. personal, colloquial, informal, like it really had yeah. this quality of like your friend talking to you at the bar, uh, as a lot of other blogs did. And the book has a very different, more elevated, more literary tone. Is that a tone that you had to sort of, or are you sort of good at mimicking other voices as a writer? Or how does that... How did that emerge?
3: That's a really great question. Um, I think. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. I think I have been writing informally for so long, and like now it's so funny. Like if I go back and like uh, I was at a college recently, and they asked me to like read from Full Frontal, and it was just painful. Like it was just the most painful experience. I was like, oh, did I really like talk and write like this ten years ago? This is terrible. So I think it's you know just in part being older and my voice has has changed. But I was actually really lucky. Like part of the way that the sort of Tone for this book came about was um, I was writing a food column for the Toast, rest in peace, and the fucking dream writing about food. I know, right? <laughs> I was like, well, the, you know, Mallory and Nicole contacted me. They're like, we'd really love you for you to write something for us. I was like, will you let me write about food? <laughs> and to their credit, they're like, sure, no problem. Um, so I started writing this this food column, and because. My relationship with food is so much about my relationship with my family and and my mother. It just tapped into something really different for me. Uh And so the writing was different. And through that column, which was pretty short-lived, but I was really glad to do it, I was able to sort of stretch those muscles a little bit. And when I did, I got, it felt scary to me because it was definitely a different kind of writing newer for me. But the reaction I got was so supportive and so great. And people really liked it that I decided to just like go with it.
2: When you think about how to allocate the time you can spend reading because you have a family, mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm. a job, you have speaking, you have all these things, yeah. and then you can read Twitter, you can read newspaper articles, you can read um, books, you can read magazine pieces. There's, how do you think about allocating the time you have to learn new things through reading?
3: It's funny that you that you say learn new things because I was going to say most of what I read are books that I've read a million times. Oh, really? over. Yeah, I do a lot of I do a lot of fiction reading and I've had like the same, you know, five or so books on my nightstand and I just reread them over and over and over again. For me, I think that that's just like a grounding and a comforting, uh-huh. it, you know, I feel like when you do so much work online, you can feel sort of disconnected. And so for me... What are the books? Oh, goodness. Right now I'm rereading 100 Years of Solitude, which I do every year, which has like become sort of like a joke yeah. between between Andrew and I. play it as it lays, Joan Didion. And their eyes were watching God. And I just finished the Elena Ferrante set. which oh, was yeah. which was like, have you read it?
2: I haven't. I I've, I want to read it.
3: Andrew Andrew is like trying to work through the first one. He has a harder time with fiction than I do. They were really really fun
2: and great. I think that's super interesting that you reread the same books. It's funny because I never I've never heard of anybody doing that over and over, <laughs> and, over and over again. And I've never thought of doing it, but as soon as you say it, it makes complete sense why right. you would. So I watch the same shows over and over and right. over again, right? I mean, if I am, like, having a long day, like, I will just watch the episode of Parks and Rec right. where Chris Traeger gets the flu. <laughs> like, that is, as <laughs> far as I'm episode. concerned, the peak that culture has reached right. in this country. And you know, oftentimes when I'm trying to find fiction, which I think probably like Andrew, I have a little bit of a harder time with. And yeah. I'm just kind of nagging like, oh, you should be reading some hard, you know, book right. about policy because you don't do any reporting anymore. And <laughs> I have a lot of guilt around my reading, which is why I ask people about it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm often looking for fiction. I'm like, I would love to find something like The Art of Fielding or like, right. you know, some book that has brought me a lot of joy or comfort. But I don't remember these books. Like I should just reread them a bunch you of just times.
3: should just reread <laughs> them. It's really nice. It just feels very – it just feels very comforting and really comfortable and like relaxing to me. But
2: also, you reread like classic greatest hundred books of all time. I know. Sort of like that. I, I feel like that's almost that a cop love. out.
3: Oh. But it's not but those are the books i really like i'm like trying like, to think of really what else d- that d- are not like if you
2: go to your house it's like Raymond one one day i'm gonna like come over and it's gonna be like dean coons and it's gonna Well, listen i was an all. I
3: was an english major right <laughs> like i was like an english major nerd and i was a, this is a, not embarrassing but i was like a shakespeare nerd like oh, really? i like focused on shakespeare so like you'll also find me doing a lot of that reading. but i think that that has to do with i also did a lot of acting in high school and so like i like the the Almost feeling like you're reading out loud, and plays are reading plays are really good. For
2: My that. wife was also an English literature major, and it there makes you. me feel so uncultured.
3: <laughs> That's what Andrew says, and I'm like, "You went to Harvard. I went to SUNY. Relax." Like, you know? I
2: also am married to someone who went to Harvard, and I also went to a public college, nice. and I feel very uncultured <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. Who are? Well, this is a, a question I normally ask, but to maybe focus in a different direction, what are some books about? feminism specifically, that if mm. someone is listening to this and wants to get a bit of a grounding that have that influenced you and that you think are, are books people should actually read. Not not books that people should have read, but yeah. are books that people should read.
3: Yeah. I think if you want sort of a, a really great, like, current understanding of, of what's going on, I think Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist is a must read. the book that really changed my thinking on a... On a lot of a lot of things was Julia Serrano's Whipping Girl about transgender issues, which I think people should absolutely read, not just because of the take on transgender issues, but sort of conversations around femininity and what femininity means in America. And of course, like Bell Hooks, feminism is for everybody. I think that that's like a really nice if you're coming to it. That's a really nice book to, to start
2: with. What's something that you believe is true that most people believe is false?
3: That the underworld movies were Excellent and amazing. All of them? All of them. (laughs) I really like – I really enjoy like werewolf and vampire (laughs) movies. Not of like the Twilight variety but of like the just –
2: Like the Blade variety. Yeah.
3: I love Blade. Blade is
2: great. I mean – Well, not Blade 3.
3: No. Yeah. Oh, well, I could watch it. I really, I, I really like, and, and this is like a point of contention for me and Andrew too, because like Andrew would be very happy to watch like documentaries all day, and and
2: I really want to watch like some gory sci-fi bullshit. I feel really bad about my apparent inability to watch documentaries. Really? Yeah. I do not. I'm always like, can I have the information faster? Like, if I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna. Yeah. Read it. Uh, yeah. If I'm gonna watch stuff, I, I just watch.
3: Andrew enjoys like the like he really he gets into it, he enjoys it, and I just find it so tedious. I just, which is terrible. And he like used to work for Frontline, so like that's good, you know. <laughs> so he should, and that's and that's good. But for me, no. But I also just like to turn my brain off. You know what I mean? Like you're, I'm writing and talking about like rape and assault and abortion all day. Like sometimes you just want to watch some vampires kill some werewolves.
2: Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't?
3: Oh goodness!
2: This is a new question a reader a listener suggested. Oh, that, that is I'm a question.
3: Um, not that I can think
2: of.
3: I'm gonna I'm gonna say no. I mean, because it's it's your show, man.
2: Is it? I think, I think it's all of our shows. It's all
3: of our shows.
2: <laughs> it's very generous. It um, was well, awesome. It's super. It's super great to see you. To get a chance to talk to you. Thank um, you. For your book me. is great. People really should read it. Thank you. Um, and yeah, Jessica Blenti. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. That was Jessica Blenti. Again, I, my my praise for the book is real. You should check it out. I think it's really worth reading. I appreciate the time she was here. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. Thank you to Panoply and Box.com for putting on this fine show. And thank you to all of you. You are fine people to spend an hour or so, or however long, with me each week. I hope you are back with me next week.